I was directed not to take an approach of exploration. You must, you must always affirm the child. So in that is a, is a directive from the hospital that, that you can't explore all those issues or consider that those issues might be contributing to the gender dysphoria. So we're way past being able to do that. We're actually not allowed to. There's no way that a child can understand the long-term implications of these interventions when they're 10, 11, starting puberty blockers. There's no way for them to understand the consequences of lifelong infertility and the complications of surgery, which can be terrible. And so it's really unethical to have children started on these interventions at such a young age. In mid-April of this year, Dr Gillian Spencer was stood down from her job as a senior staff specialist at a public children's hospital in Queensland because of her approach to young children wanting to change their sex. I wanted to hear her story firsthand and find out why she chose to make such a courageous stand when so many other medical professionals are too scared to. You see, Dr Spencer is an expert in her field with over 20 years of experience as a medical practitioner and 10 as a specialist psychiatrist. She has been open about preferring a cautious and holistic approach to the treatment of gender dysphoria cases, rather than an automatic affirmation-only approach. Her approach is consistent with growing international medical discourse on gender treatment for minors following investigations in the UK, Finland, Sweden and the Netherlands. Nevertheless, this cautious approach is not permitted by the Queensland Children's Hospital. As a consequence of her professional opinions and courageous stand, Dr Spencer has had a complaint against her, which is being investigated by the hospital and she has been stood down pending the investigation. Her story should give backbone to New Zealand medical professionals who also need to speak up. It also serves as a warning to parents as to just how deep this ideology has embedded itself. Gillian, thanks for your time. Um, can you tell us just firstly, what, what are your qualifications and what is your role professionally? So um, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, which means that I studied medicine at university and then the pathway is to work as a junior doctor in the hospitals for a couple of years and then start specialty training. So I studied psychiatry, which took about five years, and I did subspecialty certificates in child and adolescent psychiatry and forensic psychiatry and qualified in 2009. And so I've worked as a psychiatrist since then, and I've worked for Queensland Health for 21 years. And I don't have any religious or political affiliations, but I am married to a Kiwi, and my mum was a proud Kiwi, so um, I have a lot of relatives in New Zealand, and I know it's a beautiful country. And you've also got three children. Um, does that mean that you've got an even more vested interest um, because you're, you've kind of got three lab rats in the house at the same time as your professional work. Yeah, well, I think having children has given me a greater insight into the complexities of parenting. And I do think in this current situation that any child's vulnerable to um, the social contagion that's existing at the moment in regards to gender ideology. So uh, I do keep my eye out for my kids. Mm. When you were going through your studies, uh, I mean, um, you know, people who go through uh, tertiary education universities now, gender ideology is one of the key topics. I mean, there's whole departments dedicated to it. How much did you hear about gender ideology when you went through your training? 
Oh, just about nothing. Yeah, it really wasn't um, in any way on our radar. No. Yes, it's all been in the last, mm, probably since 2018, because the gender clinic was set up in my hospital in 2017. So before that, I never saw a child with gender dysphoria. So this is something that has really just surfaced in the last seven to eight years? Yes, definitely. So you've been suspended from uh, your role at Queensland Hospital. Why were you suspended? Yeah, so I've been removed from clinical duties. Um, so I, I was raising concerns about the model of care that was in use for children with gender dysphoria in the hospital called the affirmation model for some time. And then I started to get in trouble with the hospital executive last year because I said I didn't want to immediately use the preferred pronouns of children and adolescents. And that was because I was noticing that in our clinical discussions, we were all just pretending that the children had changed sex and their gender dysphoria was never a focus of treatment. So that led to a series of very unpleasant meetings with my bosses and they broadened the issue out to whether I would agree to refer gender questioning children to the gender clinic, which they said was a workplace requirement. And I ended up getting, being given a hospital, uh, the hospital executives gave me a directive that I must always use the preferred pronouns of children and adolescents. I must always take an affirming approach uh, to kids with gender dysphoria and must always refer gender questioning children to the gender clinic. And so whilst that was all going on, I engaged with some lawyers to work together on a Human Rights Commission complaint to challenge the legality of those hospital directives. And so whilst that Human Rights Commission complaint was in preparation, I unexpectedly received a complaint from an adolescent patient. And I can't talk about that complaint because it's covered by a patient's right to confidentiality. But, but what I can say is that Working in psychiatry, it's quite an emotionally charged area, mm. and complaints do happen from time to time, often related to misunderstandings. And the usual approach is always to you know, listen to the patient, understand their concerns, and try and find a way forward, which might be to clarify misunderstanding, or get a second opinion, or apologise for any unintended hurt caused. And that process can be helpful for the patient, but also for the doctor, for the doctor-patient relationship and the doctor's own learning. But the hospital didn't follow that process at all. Um, they just immediately removed me from clinical duties. When you're talking about children and adolescents, how young are we, what's the youngest that might turn up to a gender clinic? Oh, you can get the little kids turning up. Um, Often parents are concerned when um, little kids, it's often predominantly prepubescent boys who show a cross-sex identification from an early age. Um, that's been well described for a long time. Um, so there might be two, three, four, but... Um, two, three, four years old. Well, if the parents are really concerned, mm. the affirmation pathway at that stage is social transition. Right. It's only at the start of puberty that there's medical interventions. So still affirm... Uh, two, three, four-year-olds with the fact that they may want to identify as the opposite sex, the social transition. Yes, because they're regarded as naturally trans or gender diverse. Yeah. And when you say puberty, so for boys, we might be talking about uh, 10, 11, 12 years old? Yeah, well, so the affirmation model as it's practised today is to 
get all kids to contemplate their gender and then when a child presents with cross-sex identification or gender dysphoria, they're considered to be naturally trans or gender diverse. And then the, rec the pathway is social transition, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones and gender surgeries. And that pathway is recommended on the grounds that it's meant to be life-saving to protect the child from suicide, even though there's no evidence to suggest that children with gender dysphoria have a higher rate of suicide than kids, other kids with mental health problems. And there's no evidence to suggest that the affirmation model reduces suicide. So that first step of social transition, that's been recommended, that's a fairly new thing to recommend that because uh, the harms of that have been known for, long, for at least 10 years. The Dutch researchers that pioneered gender treatments for children, they warned against social transition back in 2012 because they knew that it's something that can make it harder for a child to recover from the gender dysphoria. Mm. So the first medical step in the affirmation model is puberty blockers, and they're started at age 10 to 12, mm. Tanner stage two, and they have side effects similar to the menopause. So mm. fatigue, hot flushes, weight gain and mood swings. And they also reduce bone mineralization at a time of life when bones are meant to be peaking in strength and they have suspected cognitive effects because adolescence is such an important time for brain development. So um, with the puberty blockers, they're started at the very start of puberty. And if the child um, goes on to take cross-sex hormones, which they invariably do, that, that child's ovaries and testes and genital tissues won't develop. And so that child will be permanently infertile and their capacity um, for sexual functioning will be reduced. And then the cross-sex hormones have long-term serious physical health side effects. Now, the Ministry of Health in New Zealand actually said that puberty blockers were fully reversible. And then in the dead of night, when they thought nobody was looking, they removed that statement. Uh, do people still argue that they are fully reversible when they're not? Um, oh, only the hardline gender doctors. Mm. Puberty blockers were initially conceptualised as giving children time to think, but what's known from their widespread use is that they prevent the child recovering from gender dysphoria. So in the studies where children with gender dysphoria weren't treated with the affirmation model, so they weren't given puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, 60 to 90% of children recovered from their gender dysphoria through the course of adolescence. But what we know from their widespread use is that if a child's placed on puberty blockers, almost all yep. will go on to take cross-sex hormones more than 95%. So that's why we keep saying that they're preventing the child from recovering from gender dysphoria. And this gender affirmation model where it's done by medical professionals, what if, what if a child turns up saying that they believe they're the, the other sex, but the parents don't want to go through that model, they want to adopt the watchful waiting uh, what happens then when the parents disagree with the child? How does the medical profession professionals deal with that? Do they say, well, we still want you to refer them through to the gender clinic? Yes, because that child's considered naturally trans or gender diverse. Mm. And so the parents are encouraged to come to that understanding mm. and to support the child on this affirmation pathway. Can you think of any other condition where the diagnosis is basically predicted or mandated before there's any proper thorough assessment of the patient? No, I can't think of any condition where we do that. It's so different from any other aspect of child and adolescent psychiatry. 
with how we usually operate in child and adolescent psychiatry is that we do an initial assessment and use lots of sources of information and we come up with an initial hypothesis and then we rely on the multidisciplinary team to get further information to either confirm the hypothesis or come up with another theory about what's going on and that very complex understanding which we call a formulation is used to guide the treatment and that formulation can change over time for example, if, if um, there's a young person who's going to school and they're struggling at school and getting aggressive, then you might relate it to developmental or temperamental factors, but you also might get a cognitive assessment to see whether maybe they're struggling. You'll maybe do a family assessment to see if there's issues to do with aggression and anger in the family that are being modelled. So it, it, it unfolds over time and we really try and tailor the treatment to what's required. It's very careful, very respectful, but it's, it's never this model which is used with the affirmation model which is railroad yeah it's a biological formulation this is a, a biological natural condition that must be treated with complex very serious medical interventions that are very harmful and it's really important to know that, that there's no way that a child can understand the long-term implications of these interventions when they're 10 11 starting puberty blockers there's no way for them to understand the consequences of lifelong infertility and the complications of surgery which can be terrible and so it's really unethical to have children started on these interventions at such a young age. Because one thing I've always wondered is that when we deal with for example anorexia nervosa which is a you know uh, we think that we're fat but in fact the girl is actually dangerously skinny to the point of starvation and possibly going to physically harm herself. We don't offer liposuction or weight loss tablets, we heal the mind. Mm. Why aren't we going down that track of healing the mind for gender dysphoria rather than cutting off healthy parts, medicalising, castrating? Why, why have we moved away from what seems a common sense approach? That's because with anorexia, everyone accepts that that's a mental health condition that needs treatment. But with gender dysphoria, <clears throat> the gender clinics believe that that's a natural variation in humanity. So they do believe that the child's trans and or gender diverse and that they need to be affirmed. Even though it involves uh, chopping off healthy body parts like breasts and penises? Yes, that's right. That's, that, that's what they believe is necessary. So when a child turns up for uh, gender affirmation treatment, how much time is spent on uh, determining whether there's other comorbid factors in play? The, the gender clinics are rapid assessment and treatment clinics. Mm. And so they do an assessment, usually over three to four sessions. It depends on the age of the child, but this is, I'm talking about a peripubertal child where they feel that they might need to act. Mm. Uh, they'll do an assessment over three to four sessions and talk to the child and family about the treatment pathway. But what's important to know is that even if they did a hundred sessions before getting the child onto the medical pathway, it, it's still, there's no way of them knowing whether this is a child who will persist in their gender dysphoria. They have no way of knowing, so it doesn't really matter how long the assessment phase is because no matter what the child's complexity 
is, I always find that they come to the same conclusion, which is that the gender dysphoria is persistent and consistent and insistent, which is words from the W path. And they always come to the conclusion that the appropriate treatment pathway is the affirmation model. Mm. And that's because everyone in the gender clinic is contractually obliged to follow the affirmation model. It's written into mm. the gender clinic's model of care. And so what we find is they lean heavily on the idea that they're doing careful assessments within a multidisciplinary team. But a multidisciplinary team is meaningless when everyone follows mm. the same model. Mm. It's really different from any from the way any child and adolescent mental health service functions. We've always regarded adolescence and childhood as a time of growth and change, and we never think that things are fixed in place. But um, yeah, this is just so different from any other part of child and adolescent psychiatry, it's unrecognisable. So have we got past the point where a child may turn up and say that they believe they're the other sex and the medical professionals will say, well, actually, no, there's issues of trauma or there's issues of autism. Go away and get that sorted first. Get, get treatment for that. Have we got past that point and we just say, OK, if you think that, we're going to uh, do the gender affirmation model, no further questions asked? Oh, we're long past that. <laughs> and, um, but that's shocking. Yeah, well, that's um, with what I was directed. I know it's hard to sort of understand in some ways, but... I was directed not to take an approach of exploration. You must, you must always affirm the child. So in that is a, is a directive from the hospital that, that you can't explore all those issues mm. or consider that those issues might be contributing to the gender dysphoria. Mm. So we're way past being able to do that. We're actually not allowed to. And a parent's, I mean, I've heard of examples. I've interviewed Chloe Cole from the US. Um, who's the 18 year, 19 year old mm. now detransitioner, mm. the statement that's given to the parents is uh, basically, would you rather a live daughter or a dead son mm. or vice versa? This, this suicide trope is used yeah. um, by medical professionals to push this affirmation model. Is that part of the policy? You, you throw the suicide one if the parents are having some doubts? Oh, well, I, I couldn't do that. I just couldn't do that in conscience. That would be terrible. But um, it's true that in the gender clinic, it's part of their patient information mm. or parent information. In the gender clinic, it's part of their parent information mm. handout about the idea that if you affirm the child, then their risk of suicide will drop. So there's false information in the parent information handout from the gender clinic. So you mentioned the Dutch study. There's been more recent studies, hasn't there, about... Uh, post-operative um, transgender still having same suicidal rates, is that or correct? Or higher than the general population, mm. yeah. The very poor outcomes in terms of suicide and also physical health and mental health in adults that have transitioned as adults. Those studies are before, are not as far as I know, they're not of kids that went through the affirmation model. Mm. We really don't know the outcomes for kids having had the affirmation model. So the US, Australia, New Zealand, they're heading down this gender affirmation model blindly. They're not, they don't seem to be willing to even consider options and yet a number of European countries, liberal European mm. countries, mm. are pressing the pause button. Why, why? What have they found out that we need to open our eyes to? Yeah, well, I think it's had different mechanisms in different countries. For example, in Finland, it was actually the 
doctors working in the gender clinics that raised the alarm and asked their government for guidelines because what they realised was that the kids turning up to the gender clinic were very different from those kids that were through the Dutch um, protocol. And so what we've had is an avalanche of adolescents um, presenting with gender dysphoria and they often have complex mental health problems and neurodiversity, histories of trauma, friends that are transitioning. And so the Finnish doctors realise that they don't have any evidence about how to treat that new group. But I think also with the original cohort, which was the kids who had very long-term gender dysphoria, more than five years and very stable families and were psychologically stable, I think what's been realised is that because now we know that puberty blockers aren't a pause and that they do... They predict, don't they? Yeah, they, they, they do. They lock the gender dysphoria in place and put the child on this long-term treatment pathway with very serious risks and consequences and harms. I think even for that original cohort, we're all thinking that that's not a good idea now. So, but in Sweden, it seemed to be to do with the population and particularly parents of kids with, or parents of adolescents with gender dysphoria who really campaigned and they had a key documentary called The Trans Train that led to change. And so there's different ways for change to happen. In Queensland, uh, when I talk to doctors, they feel like it's got to come from the people and the, through the politicians. And when I talk to the politicians, they feel like it's got to come from the doctors. Mm. But, oh, I just hope that something changes soon. Yeah, I would assume it would come from the medical professionals because they start to see the outcomes of and hear the stories of the detransitioners. In fact, you were recently at a function that had detransitioners there, young detransitioners. What was kind of their message to the audience? You know, what, what did they want medical professionals to hear? Yeah, well, listening to their stories is heartbreaking mm. and they feel very hurt by the medical profession. They do feel that they weren't understood and cared for, that this was very harmful. It's really important to listen to those voices. Mm. In terms of people not speaking up, I think, I guess there could be people out there that don't know about the harms of the affirmation model and so they're going along with it thinking that they're doing the right thing. I think it's getting increasingly hard. There's a lot of dodgy to... research out there, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. That it... yeah, yeah, that's a real problem. Uh, there's a real problem in the medical research in this area with um, the researchers claiming things that aren't true from their studies. I mean, some of the research I've seen come out of WPATH, which also has a sort of affiliate uh, in New Zealand. Oh, well, they're uh, a lobby group. Uh, they're, mm. they're, not, they're certainly not scientists. No, they're not scientists. Research. No, absolutely not. And yet they are predicting the, or, or they're dictating the, um, the policy and procedures. Yes, it's really frustrating that these very, this very small group of hardline gender doctors have been very productive in creating guidelines and standards of care and, and then those are being used to influence the family court judges and to influence governments. Mm. It's a real problem. But I think it is becoming increasingly hard for people to claim that they don't know about the harms, especially if you work in health, because we've had the UK Tavistock scandal and the CAS review unfolding over three years. And I do think that the vast majority of child and adolescent psychiatrists have very serious concerns about the affirmation model, but they're just keeping quiet because they're worried about their employment or they're worried about their professional registration or they're worried about criminal sanctions under the conversion therapy legislation. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's the case even in New Zealand. The association has said we need to be a bit more cautious, but you're right, they're being silenced. There's been articles in New Zealand um, by academics saying that their colleagues are too scared to speak up. Mm. I mean, how has that fear been allowed to embed itself so deeply that medical professionals who are supposed to be under the mandate of do no harm us uh, are ignoring that that you know calling on on their work it's very difficult it's been very hard to see colleagues who are aware of the harms continuing to provide treatment according to the affirmation model but understand they're obliged to do so by the hospital mm. when the hospital executive did impose the directions upon me they did so and they always said it was because the government has the right to impose the policies of the day. So part of the question from my Human Rights Commission case is, do public health services have the right to compel doctors to provide treatments that aren't evidence-based that will harm children? And then I guess there's another issue, which is, do doctors have the right to speak out when they're concerned? Do they have the right to speak out publicly? Yeah. Or do they have to keep quiet in order to not bring their profession into disrepute and not cast aspersions on the motives of colleagues, which is what APRA considers when they're trying to decide whether a doctor's allowed to keep their registration. Right. And so people would be uh, looking at what you've experienced in your case, and that kind of sends a shiver down their spine, doesn't it? It has a chilling effect because they see what's happened to you. So can we, so, I mean, you've, you've paid a huge cost. I mean, you've, you've, been out of work since the beginning of the year in terms oh, of mid-April, that. mid-April, so six months. Yeah. Um, I mean, that must, not only the chilling effect, but uh, it seems very um, overreached, the fact that they would just suspend you like that. I mean, has there been an uprising of support from other professionals to support you, or um, are they too scared to speak up in support of you? There are child and adolescent psychiatrists behind the scenes who are doing everything that they can, walking a very fine line, trying to keep their careers whilst raising concerns. I, I do know a lot of doctors and child and adolescent psychiatrists who feel as concerned as I do about gender treatments for children and we all try and support each other and stay sane, try and stay sane in the face of our profession being involved in this medical scandal. It's a terrible situation. I think it's been really um, hard for all my colleagues. I don't know what's gonna happen, but I am hoping that I won't have to pay a high price. I do want to work back at the hospital and be with my colleagues. Um, I've worked at that hospital for nine years and for Queensland Health for 21 years. And I know in terms of ethical dilemmas at work that some people say, if your employer is doing something you don't agree with, you should leave. But I think it's different when you consider yourself part of the fabric of the, the organisation and you really want to contribute to a positive workplace culture and workplace practices. And psychiatrists are considered the clinical leaders of the mental health teams and we're all made to do mandatory training and speaking up for safety. So it is part of my role to ensure that the treatments being delivered to children are evidence-based and safe. Mm. And it's important that I speak out when they're not. And so in that way, I feel like I'm still doing my job and still doing it to the best of my ability. 
You must have known that by speaking out you were putting your career at risk, did you? I, I thought that that Human Rights Commission complaint would be the way that I challenged the appropriateness of the hospital directives and then the patient complaint was very unexpected. I was um, told by the lawyers to be very careful and I was being very careful and I was biding my time waiting for that Human Rights Commission complaint. What's your message to other medical professionals working in this field, feeling muzzled, feeling they can't speak up? What would you say to them? Yeah, it's very difficult because I think about my situation. I think, oh, I'm doing okay, you know, I'm coping. And then I hear about other people going through something similar and I get very upset mm. for them, which I guess is for myself. Sometimes I hear about, or say for example, I heard about someone sent me an email and they were talking about a, a nurse in another part of Australia who'd changed their email, work, email signature to human slash being. I just felt devastated because I just, I just knew that it was a howl into the darkness because it's so hard when you're feeling that way. It's very dark when you are working and you have something going on that you think is not right. I don't know what to say to them, but I guess we've all got to stick together and try and get through this and make it change. We really need to change this. I think the reputation of our profession depends on it. How, so let's say you're in charge, you can wave the magic wand. How would you treat a child that arrives that has gender dysphoria? Yeah, well for prepubescent children, I think they should be loved and supported, but we shouldn't change their pronouns and we shouldn't embed within them false ideas like they're trapped in the wrong body or that they can actually change to be the opposite sex. We should let them wear what they want within the limits of school uniform or social appropriateness, but we shouldn't ask the whole community around them to pretend that they're the opposite sex. And that's because we've got to give them the best chance to recover from the gender dysphoria. And they need to know the reality of their situation because the road of medical transition is very difficult with serious harms and consequences. I think the best thing that government can do for children and families is to disallow the prescription of puberty blockers for gender dysphoria. And that's because we know that they take away the child's best chance of recovery because the qualitative studies of people who have recovered from gender dysphoria show that it is the full course of adolescence which helps with recovery. So things like the broadening of the social group, the broadening of activities and interests, the individuation from parents, the sexual awakening and experiences of intimacy, all those experiences help with recovery. And it's not safe to have puberty blockers available just for extenuating circumstances because then the child, the adolescent will still come to think of them as the quick fix to their distress and they could escalate to try and get them, which makes it more risky. In terms of adolescents with gender dysphoria, it's important that they have available to them the full range of evidence-based interventions um, that are mental health interventions that are available through general child and adolescent mental health services. And in addition, they should be offered psycho psychology or counseling, long-term counseling, 
which doesn't assume that medical transition is the right way forward because those harms and risks shouldn't be taken lightly. The term is often used about rapid onset gender dysphoria, that this is almost becoming a trendy fad which has been driven by social media and peer groups and so that's why there's this mass explosion in cases. How true do you think that is? Oh, um, there has been a very strong social movement um, enthusiastically celebrating and promoting transition and that's been online and in our community with events, books, television and through schools. And um, it is children and adolescents that are most sensitive to that social messaging and to online influences. And so when a child is um, identifying as trans, they're, they're stepping into a role where they feel emotionally complex, misunderstood, brave, and part of an important social justice movement. And so that can be a really intoxicating persona for an adolescent. And in addition, there's other adolescents where transition for them is about escaping distress or trauma or about um, making social connections if they've experienced social, uh, social rejection or escaping from unwanted feelings of same-sex attraction. So there is a social contagion going on and what that means is that as more adolescents transition then that inspires other adolescents and the momentum builds. So what support are you getting? Is it just legal support? Oh, no, I've got a supportive family and luckily it is the one issue that we all agree on. <laughs> and, um, and then I've got um, lots of doctors and child psychiatrists that I know who feel the same as I do about the concerns about gender treatments for children, so we all support each other. And then I've had um, good legal support too. And that legal support's been a lifesaver for you? It has. It's been extraordinary to receive that um, through some very dark times. Gillian, thanks for your time. Thank you.